about him. From Genesis to Revelation, no matter where you stop, no matter where you read, no matter where you meditate, no matter where you concentrate, wherever it is, wherever your finger falls in the pages of Scripture, it is all about him. It's, all, it's either foretelling him or it's talking about him being here or it's talking about when he comes back. It's all, it's all about him. It's all about him. And, 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 and by his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and his return, he completes the Old Testament. He makes it happen. He brings it into reality. Jesus is not setting it aside and starting over with something different. He finishes the incomplete masterpiece that was begun in the Old Testament. It is incomplete without Jesus. When he shows up, he fulfills everything that the Old Testament says. He fulfills it. And so he says, I've not come to abolish everything you've been taught. I have actually come to fulfill it because the Old Testament, Jesus says, is vitally and critically important to me, just as it is to you, those of you who are gathered on the side of the mountain who have been following me, and now you sit uh, attentively listening to everything I'm saying. Let me just say to you that the Old Testament to me is just as important as it is to you. I'm not making it up. I can prove it. It's in verses 18 and 19. Here's what Jesus says in those verses. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's what he says in 18. Uh, what, what does he mean by that? What, 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 is, what is going on when he says that? Uh, the, the Greek word iota is the English word jot. And it, it, uh, a letter, it's a letter uh, of the Greek alphabet that corresponds with the letter I. Uh, it's equivalent of the Aramaic and Hebrew letter yard, which is written like our apostrophe, just a small stroke of a pen on the page. So he says that, and then he says dot. What does he mean by dot? Dot is the Greek word korea. Literally, it means a horn, projection, hook as a part of a letter. It is a small, like if you were to distinguish between a capital I and a one. There's difference. If, if, you don't, if you don't capitalize the I, it could be mistaken for a one. But it's different. That, that little hook on the end is what Jesus is talking about. He says, even those small things. Uh, I like the way the NIV translate verse 18. This is what the NIV says. It says this. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus says the Old Testament is just as important to me as it is to you. Jesus didn't just come to round out the big themes of the Bible but to fulfill or accomplish even the tiny prophecies and verses from the Old Testament. Not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law or the law's intent is what he comes to fulfill. And in his life, he does that. He fulfills all of that. Uh, so he says to them, the Old Testament 
is just as important to me as it is to you. Verse 19 says this, therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, uh, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and reach and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven because Jesus says to his followers, the law is important. The prophets are important to me. And we're not going to erase or abolish any of that. It has its place. It has its purpose. But I today have come to fulfill all of that. And so then he gets into this idea of true righteousness. What is true righteousness? It's in verse 20. He lays it out quite clearly, although one could describe it as challenging. One could describe it um, in a way that would sound uh, off to them. So here's what he says in 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, Sounds radical. It's going it's to hit them as radical. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's getting at is this idea of true righteousness. Uh, the Pharisees uh, went to great extremes to make sure they were not disobeying God's law. Great extremes to do it. To the people of their day, there was no more righteous people than the Pharisees. They saw them as the righteous of the righteous. In fact, they thought of themselves as the righteous of the righteous. But Jesus says something radical. He says, your righteousness must exceed theirs. Can you imagine? Somebody that I consider to be the holy, holiest person I know. And I feel like they can do no wrong. They, to me, are perfect because they think they're perfect. (laughs) And they carry themselves like they're perfect. And then for somebody to say to me, your righteousness, I've never seen them do anything wrong, never heard them say anything wrong, never saw anything unrighteous in them. And to have someone to say to me, your righteousness has to exceed their righteousness if you want to have a shot. Can't you see how that would have been radical to them? This statement likely caused his followers to wonder how That could be possible, that they could be even more righteous than the Pharisees. How in the world could something like that be possible? The answer, can I give you the answer? The answer is that true righteousness can only come through a heart transformed by Jesus. That's the answer. It's called imputation. It's called imputation. It simply means that you didn't do anything to earn it. You can't brag about it. You don't deserve it. God just imputed it to you when you accepted Jesus as Savior. It was given to you. Romans, Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 3. He says this in verses 20 through 22. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is imputation. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You ought to get excited about imputation. You know what ought to excite you? It ought to excite you because you know you don't deserve it. And I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about me also because my righteousness, like Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. But I have somebody living on the inside of me that has taken up residence in my heart. And righteousness has been imputed to me. The one that least deserved it. It's been imputed to me. I like what Spur, y'all know my favorite guy. Oh, oh, Charlie. Not talking about Charlie Wilson. Y'all get your mind out. Y'all know y'all. Get your mind, get your mind back. Come on back. <laughs> I know he's seen blessed and all that. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about old Charlie Spurgeon. He got something to say about this. Charles says this, the boundless Deser- I love this. I, I, I can't get away from him. He just says such eloquent things. He says this, the boundless deservings of the Lord Jesus are set to your account and your terrible demerits are thereby neutralized once for all. Don't you love Charlie? Here's what he says. He goes on to say this. He was holy and was written among the holy. We were guilty and numbered among the guilty. He transfers his, transfers his name from yonder list to this indictment. And our names are taken from the indictment and written in the role of acceptance. For there is a complete transfer made between Jesus and his people. Ooh, we was in a Baptist church. Y'all be up running and shouting right now. That's shouting stuff right there. So true righteousness can only come by way of imputation. And one of its evidences is genuineness. So we've talked about what it is and how we get it. Uh, Let's talk about one of the evidences of true righteousness. It is genuineness. Y'all don't need me to define that, do you? It means don't be faking and shaking. We'll talk more about it in a minute. Although the Pharisees were on very good behavior, Jesus criticized the Pharisees and scribes for being hypocrites. He criticized them for that. In Matthew 23, verse 25, here's what he says to them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed 
and self-indulgence. He says that they were hypocritical. They were guilty of putting on a show. Guilty of perpetrating a fraud. Guilty of impersonating a righteous person. Guilty of being caught up in external performance versus internal reality. They were charged and found guilty of all of those things. Shaking and faking. What follows then in verses 21 through 48 are six examples of the statement that Jesus makes in verse 20. Let me read verse 20 again so I can set the stage like Jesus did. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he gives now six comparisons between external performance of the law and internal obedience to the law. And so today, we'll look at the first three. I don't have time to look at the other three. We'll do that next week, hopefully. Lord says the same. Amen, somebody. So the first three, first three, I'm going to try to get through these uh, quickly, and some of them are not quick stuff, so y'all pray with me and for me. <laughs> so first one, he said, first of all, he, he, he begins all of these uh, uh, comparisons the same way, except for the one we get to divorce is a little bit different, but most of them are began and talked about the same way. They all begin with, you have heard. And somewhere in there, he's going to say, but I say. All of them, you have heard, but I say. So first one deals with unresolved anger. It's in verses 21 through 26. 21 through 26. Unresolved anger. 21 says this. You have heard that it was said, by those, said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says, it's not against the law. I'm sorry, he says, it's not only against the law to murder. It's also against the law to stay angry with someone. To stay angry with someone, to not resolve it. Anger in itself is not sinful. We know that Jesus got angry. Uh, we know that oftentimes there's nothing we can do with righteous indignation but have it. The problem comes when we linger, when it lingers and when we don't resolve it. It's anger that is allowed to go unresolved and handled the wrong way. It's what we choose to do with anger and what we choose to do because of anger that makes it sinful. It's, it's how, we, how we deal with it. Uh, Jesus says, but I say, whoever insults, whoever insults, it's the word raka, R-A-C-A. And it, 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 and it says, and then it says, you fool. You fool is moros, moros in the Greek. It is where we get the word moron from. 
Raka. What's raka? What does it mean by that? It's a term of abuse to put down relating to lack of intelligence. Uh, to call somebody a numbskull, a fool. In effect, verbal bullying. Derived, it's derived from the Aramaic word meaning empty one. It's found in the Talmud. Empty head is what it means. It means to call somebody that. We say raka. Right? Uh, A.B. Bruce says something interesting about this. He distinguishes between the word raka and fool in this way. He says raka expresses contempt for a man's head. You stupid, in other words. The Greek word moros expresses contempt for his heart and character. You scoundrel is the difference. Jesus then is saying that we are guilty before God <clears throat> for a heart that lashes out in anger and venom. So it's not the anger. It's what we do with it. Do you lash out because of it? With venom and with anger, whether or not a person's life is terminated as a result is not the point. So it's not necessarily that you kill somebody. Because you do know that words, I know what you were taught growing up, but that we've all found that not to be true. You know the little thing we, we learned growing up, sticks and stones. <laughs> but word, that's a lie. All of us know by now that that's not true. And so Jesus says, what you do with what's pinned up on the inside of you is what matters. How do you resolve it? Or do you resolve it is the, is the issue. Um, God takes anger, anger seriously because it often causes us, therefore it will cause you, and then you will be talking about a little later, I'm I don't believe I did or said that. There was that other person that lives inside of me that came out. You got to keep that person in there. I tell y'all almost every Sunday, we all got a person. Paul said it's the battle of two natures. There's a, there's, a, there's a struggle going on on the inside of me. When I would do good, I find myself not being able to do good. The good that I want to do, I can't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I, I, I can shout right here because he says, if my voice would act right, I would. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Uh, there's a battle going on. And so God takes anger seriously, because it causes us to lash out and respond in an ungodly way. Here, if you will, what the rest of the Old Testament has to say about anger. Can I share some passages with you? 2 Corinthians 12, 20 says this, For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that they, there may be quarrel and jealousy, outbursts of anger, Faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. 
Later in Ephesians chapter 4, he writes this, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. He says this in Colossians 3.8, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Then to his protege, Timothy, he says this, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. James 1, 19 through 20 says this, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So what do you do? Right? Anger is bad. What is the proper response? Here's the proper response. It's in the text in verses 23 through 24. It's called reconciliation. Reconciliation is how you deal with anger. 23 and 24 says this, and this is a tough one. Y'all got to hear it. You got to read it. You got to put it in your heart. It says this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I know, I know, I know. Y'all like, stop. I don't want to hear that because it's hard for me to do that. But that's the text. I'm not making it up. In other words, if you are worshiping and remember that your brother has something against you, remember that, then, then, then we are to leave our gift behind and first be reconciled to our brother. After we've done that, then we can come back and resume our worship is what Jesus is saying. Seeking to honor God by bringing an offering is a mockery. If we don't first repent our sins, repent of our sins, and carry out that repentance to its logical conclusion. We see this taught throughout Scripture. It's not something that Jesus just came up with. He just got through explaining how all of Scripture is important to him and all of it is significant to him. And so he's not just coming up with this. This is really not that radical. Although it may have sounded radical to his hearers and it may sound radical to you. That Jesus says, whatever you bring, don't, don't come to the altar. Don't come before the Lord until you've gotten right with your brother or your sister. Listen, here it is. I know it's tough, but sometimes the attempt has to be made even when it wasn't your fault. Oh, y'all going to let me come back next week. Even when it wasn't your fault. There still needs to be a genuine attempt made at reconciliation. It's all throughout Scripture. First Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said this, has the, Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Joel says this in chapter 2, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit. 
a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Jesus in Mark 11. And wherever and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Listen, reconciliation is the proper response. I know sometimes it's difficult. I know you say, I tried, and that's fine. Look, that's all you can do oftentimes is try, right? But you need to be, be able to honestly say with sincerity and conviction in your own heart that I tried. I'm talking about some just uh, flippant uh, effort that you really didn't mean, because I'm going to tell you this right now. People know when you're not sincere. In fact, uh, when somebody tells you sorry and they don't mean it, you can hear it in their voice. And you're like, oh, that didn't really mean nothing. You have to make a sincere effort at reconciliation. Uh, we must make a sincere attempt to reconcile if we would seek to fulfill not just the law, but the spirit of the law. And then the question is, when do I do it? Well, here it is. It's in the text. Reconcile quickly. Quickly. I don't know what your quickly is. I don't know what quickly is, but all I know is Jesus says do it quickly. It's in verses 25 and 26. Here's what he says. Come to terms quickly. I didn't make up that word. It's there. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not, you will uh, never go out until you have paid the last penny. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus is uh, concluding his teaching on this subject, on reconciliation, with an example from a mini parable. He gives this mini short parable to, to drive home his message. The parable assumes that you owe your accuser a debt of some kind, and, the, and to collect it, he is taking you to small claims court. Jesus is saying this, don't wait until you get to court to work out some kind of a deal. Settle out of court. Because if the court has to decide the matter, you will be thrown into debtor's prison and won't get out until every last cent is paid. Reconcile quickly. Jesus is teaching his hearers to reconcile quickly with those they have wronged and not put it off. The implication is that if they wait for God to settle the matter at his bar of justice, the judgment will be exacting and the punishment will be harsh. So you say, when should I do it? Well, as quick as you can. Right? Don't, 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 don't wait until it's too late. Do it. In other words, do it right now. Do it quickly. And so he deals with that. He deals with this issue. This issue he deals with here uh, of um, that he deals with in this passage, unresolved anger. Then he moves on to the next one. Next issue he deals with after dealing with unresolved anger is forbidden desire. It's in verses 27 through 30. Forbidden desire. And he opens verse 27 with, the, with these words. You have heard again that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, you have heard 
but this is what I say. The Pharisees felt secure in observing the seventh commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus states their sentiment. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. They believed that. They knew that. But he says it's deeper than that. It's a matter of the heart. So he goes beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is this. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is actually the spirit of the law. We see it in Exodus chapter 20 in those same Ten Commandments. In commandment number 10, verse 17, it says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. King James says another word. I'm not going to use that today. Um, Or anything that is your neighbor's. Don't covet it. Jesus says this is the spirit of the law. And to covet, the Hebrew word is hamad. Somebody say hamad. It's a desire, a delight in, an inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire. Sometimes it's the lustful desire. It can be positive, but in this context, it's used in the negative. It means not to lust after something or someone. So the question comes, how how do I avoid it? How do I avoid it? It's in 29 and 30. Here's how you avoid it. 29 says this. I mean, I think that's quite clear. I don't need to linger there. Everybody kind of gets that, don't we? So let me just move on to how you avoid it. Because I can hear y'all asking that question. Somebody's asking that question. Here's what the text says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, my goodness, and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than than that your whole body is thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus saying? He's simply saying this. The way to avoid it. I'm not, he's not saying you need to go around cutting stuff off. <laughs> Here's what he's saying. Flee from it. Avoid it. Flee it. And that's how you don't get into it. You flee immediately from it. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. He says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The first word of that verse says flee. Jesus says how you flee is cut stuff off that will cause you to stumble. In other words, don't allow those things to be influenced by things that are ungodly. So the eye, flee the eye from anything that would cause the body to stumble, the arm, the right hand, the left hand, anything that will cause you to stumble into that stuff. Keep it away. And lastly, he deals with this issue of divorce. Divorce in verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorcement. But I, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm going to drink a little water because I got just a couple minutes. And I can see y'all folding your arms and putting your 
looking, putting them eyes down like, what, okay, what's he going to say about this? Because I'm ready. I'm ready to send them emails. <laughs> Guess what? I'm not going to give you a chance. I ought to just get a benediction right now and just say, <laughs> but I can't do that. Can't do that. This is indeed a very complex matter. And Jesus offers a more extended teaching on divorce in Matthew chapter 19. Can I just read it real quick for you? Because it really lays it out clearer than it's laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read these verses to you, and then we're going to just about be done. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 3 through 12. And, uh, and, and Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? We should just not even do it. But he said to them, it's interesting what he, how he responds. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those who it is given. For there are eunuchs, I'm not one. Who have been so from birth, and there are you. Un- I got a wife, and I look. You know, the Bible calls. I like calling what the Bible calls them my good thing. I'm not making it up. That's just in scripture. I wish she was here so she could say, so she could holler right there. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. In other words, Jesus says it's not for everybody. But for those it is, therefore, then they uh, do it. God has ordained it. It was the first institution, the family, the marriage. He institutes institutes it in Genesis 2, right? Therefore shall man leave his father, mother, and cleave to his wife. They too shall become one. Actually, the Jewish leaders, though, were, uh, uh, were, were two schools of thought regarding this matter of divorce, which is actually covered in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It covers this divorce idea. Deuteronomy 24, 1 says this, and I'm almost done. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her the certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out uh, of his house, and she departs out of his house. It says that's how it's done, that the man uh, is able to do it. In fact, in those days, the woman could not... Uh, um, what do you call it, start the process of a divorce. The woman could not even divorce her husband. It had to be the man. But it's interesting that Jesus flips the script here where the woman had no uh, care given to her at all. In that passage in Deuteronomy, Jesus says in Matthew that the woman should be cared for. Gives her her just due. Uh, so there were t- two schools of thought relating and regarding this. 
Those who followed Hillel, Hillel and Shammai were the two schools of thought. For those who followed Hillel said it was permissible for a husband to divorce his wife for any reason at all. But the other group, those following Shammai, said divorce was permissible only for a major offense. Jesus would say he would be in the Shammai school. In his response, the Lord strongly taught that divorce is viewed by God as an indissoluble unit a marriage that is, as an indissoluble unit and that marriages should not be terminated by divorce. He mentions what's known as the exception clause, except on the ground of sexual immorality. And let me say this before I finish, because I sense, I want y'all to understand this. God is able to work in any situation, right? So if some of this fits you, it's okay. God has, has, has said, let's move on. Right. If it's something that you've done, it's something that you whatever, if that's part of your history, it's part of your life. It's OK. God says I can work. Remember, I said that righteousness has been imputed on the inside of us. And remember that Jesus said that Moses allowed what he allowed because of the hardness of mankind's heart. And so there are things that are allowable now that were not originally intended. And all of us have been party to things that we wish didn't go the way they went. But we can't go back and change history now. All we can do is hold on to Jesus' unchanging hand. And he can and will make a way out of no way. And he'll turn any situation around. So nobody, nobody, nobody can say that I am outside of Jesus' reach because of something I've done. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just giving you God's ideal. Some of you might be considering getting married, and you need to know what the ideal is so that as soon as irreconcilable differences crop up, you won't be at the courthouse talking about, you know, five years ago, you know, but now he putting his socks in the flow and, and she not washing the dishes like I like and the, and, the, and the steak is not cooked the right. So we can't do this. So we need to avoid that, right? So when we can, Jesus says, avoid that. And he says, he mentions this exception clause. This exception clause uh, is the Greek word porneas. It's where we get the word pornography from. He says, except in the ground. Now, that is not the word that I talked about earlier. This is the, that word that y'all thought I was talking about earlier, right? It comes from this word, this Greek word, porneas. It says, only in that case. Uh, I like what John Stott says about this. He says, nevertheless, the matter cannot be left there. But this reluctant permission of Jesus must still be seen for what it is, namely a continued accommodation to the hardness of human hearts. In addition, it must always be read both in its immediate context, Christ's emphatic endorsement of the permanence of marriage and God's purpose, and also in the, writer, in the wider context of the Sermon on the Mount and of the whole Bible, which proclaim a gospel of reconciliation. It is not of great significance that the divine lover was willing to woo back even his adulterous wife Israel. So one must never begin a discussion on this subject by inquiring about the legitimacy of divorce. To be preoccupied with the grounds for divorce is to be guilty of the very Pharisaism which Jesus condemned. His whole emphasis 
in debating with the rabbis was positive, namely on God's original institution of marriage as an exclusive and permanent relationship, on God's yoking of two people into a union which, which man must not break. And one might add, and his call to his followers to love and forgive one another and be peacemakers in every situation of strife and discord. This is God's ideal. The Pharisees regarded divorce lightly. Jesus took it seriously. The Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command. Jesus called it a concession to the hardness of human hearts. The Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce. Jesus with the institution of marriage. It's about what happens in the heart. We should be people of love and reconciliation in any case. But if by chance <laughs> something happens, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us and set us on our way. He throws whatever it is that happened, whether it was our fault or not our fault. He throws it in the sea, never to be fished up again. So this is what I want you to know. Move on. But if you're heading into it, consider all of this before you get into it. But that's the reason why if you sit down with me, talk about you want me to marry you, we're going to do some counseling. Because I don't want to get to this place. We're going to spend some weeks. I'm just warning y'all, so don't be calling me talking about, can you marry me next Saturday? <laughs> it ain't happening. Because this is my responsibility. It's a heart matter. In closing, let us be reminded that true righteousness is an inward matter. We've been imputed with it, and as a result, we should honor God, not just in actions, but also in thought, motives, and attitudes. Can I tell you what Sir Ricky says? Y'all know Sir Ricky? Not me. Sir Ricky is Richard Scherer. He says something. Here it is. And this is the very last thing I'm going to share with you. I promise I'm closing my Bible. Y'all like, he done said that five times. This is it. Look at what he says. Nate, he says, his spirit is deep inside as a gift when you abide. So, so ensure room for his throne. You are no longer your own. Paul says you've been bought with a price. So since you've been bought with a price, you ought to clear out some space on the inside and make room for a God who wants to inhabit you, wants to dwell in you, wants to live in you, walk with you, talk with you, lead and guide you because his righteousness has been imputed. And it's a heart matter. Lord, we thank you for your word, your will, and your way. Thank you, Lord God, for even your hard sayings that sometimes we don't quite understand. We thank you, Lord, you, you leave no stone unturned. You're so concerned about us and you love us so much that you want us to have the breadth, the width, the height, and depth of your wisdom. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well,
Thank you for praying with me. Thank you for being patient. And uh, think, think, rethink, and triple think before you hit sin <laughs> tonight. Because I don't want my email talking about, well, why you, I mean, he ain't, I mean, come on now. <laughs> but thank you for your prayers.